0: The Chinese Ministry of Defense obviously denies that Belt and Road is a a military endeavor or has any military intent. The reality is that Beijing's interests abroad are growing and that there is a sense from the Chinese strategic community that we need protection. And as these interests expand, how is this community going to address the challenges in the event of a contingency or crisis in, in those Belt and Road countries?
1: This is Asia Insight, Asia policy in a pod.
2: From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Ahm. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR, where we interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region. The purpose is to provide you with timely insights into emerging issues as you consider critical decisions in business, policy, and civil society. In this episode, we bring you a conversation hosted by NBR and the Daniel Morgan Graduate School on China's Belt and Road Initiative. This conversation accompanies the release of NBR's special report, Securing the Belt and Road Initiative, China's Evolving Military Engagement Along the Silk Roads. Taken together, the essays in this report present a sweeping picture of China's options to further secure its interests along the Belt and Road routes. Common to all the essays is the idea that the expansion of Chinese Overseas interests naturally creates the need for military protection. This expansion could complicate, restrict, or even deny the United States' ability to project power, protect the lines of communication through the global commons, and to defend its allies and interests. In this conversation, Ali Sawinski, NBR's Vice President of Research, moderates this discussion with Matthew Ducatel, Kristen Gunnis, and Adesh Rolan. Ali introduces each of the speaker's bios. So without further ado, let me bring you into the conversation.
1: With that, we're going to start with Nadege. Nadege Roland, as Roy mentioned, was the PI, the principal investigator for this project. In the report, she has an introduction that really gives a great overview of um, the issues that are examined in the report. Um, She's just kind of going to go over some of those. Um, and you guys can all have the bio sheets here, but um, I'll give her her brief bio. Um, she's a senior fellow with NBR, uh, where her research focuses mainly on China's uh, foreign and defense policy and the changes in the regional dynamics across Eurasia resulting from the rise of China. Um, she draws from 20 plus years of experience as a French government official, um, and also because of that, has a significant interest in transatlantic uh, cooperation on uh, Asia affairs. Uh, so after Nadege talks, um, we'll turn it over to Mathieu, um, who authored uh, the chapter, the, the chapter in the report on um, kind of what are the the possibilities for future China military operations in BRI countries, and what are the constraints that could prevent some of those operations. Um, And he is the director of the Asia program at Institut Montagne. Before joining the institute, he was senior policy fellow and deputy director of the Asia and China program at the European Council of Foreign Relations. Um, Also the senior researcher and the representative in Beijing of the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute Um, and a research fellow at the Asia Center in Paris. So many previous affiliations for that. Um, After Mathieu presents, then we'll turn to Kristen. Kristen Gunnis authored the chapter in the report about um, how different PLA components are addressing the capability gap uh, to develop a more flexible expeditionary force that's able to execute complex, larger, and lengthier deployments away from China's shores. Uh, And Kristen is the founder and CEO of Vantage Point Asia. She has over 20 years of experience advising advising senior leaders in government and the private sector on East Asia, political, economic, and security affairs. Uh, Prior to that, she served for four years as a director of the Navy Asia Pacific Advisory Group at the Pentagon, where she advised the Chief of Naval Operations. Um, And so with that, we'll go ahead and open it up and have Nadege give us uh, some introductory remarks.
0: Well, thanks. Thanks, Ali. And um, also thank you, everyone, for being with us today. Um, I'm just going to give you a a broad sense of what we wanted to achieve with this uh, monograph. Um, You know, China is expanding um, and drastically so along the Silk Roads, you know, for the, uh, the last six years, really. Um, its, uh, its interests around the world are, are growing and expanding. And so really the quick key question um, behind this research was, so how is, uh, how is the strategic community in Beijing think about securing and protecting um, citizens uh, who are working on the infrastructure projects around the world over Two million Chinese citizens um, working abroad today in difficult areas, in difficult territories, in difficult regions and countries where the security is not is not great. Um, how are they going to protect their assets, um, the infrastructure that they're building? Some of them uh, on, that are basically Chinese. I mean, these are kind of basic questions that are. Uh, behind this report. And our approach was trying to figure out how the Chinese security military and strategic community is thinking about that. Maybe some of the things that we're going to see in the future are not there yet. Uh, And yet the problems and the security challenges are already existing. So we wanted to have really um, uh, authors who are, Experts in their domain, but also who can dig into Chinese sources, so that we can see the Chinese approach um, before we can, you know, describe what's going on. And I think that's a very important uh, thing that that we wanted to do—not just wait or look from the outside. What's what's the shape of of this military or security engagement? But also looking from the source of how the strategic thinker back thinkers back in Beijing think about those challenges and what options they see uh, for, for the future. So the Chinese Ministry of Defense obviously denies that Belt and Road is a, a military endeavor or has any military intent. Uh, the reality is that Beijing's interests abroad are growing um, and that there is a sense from the Chinese strategic community that we need protection. Uh, so, and as these uh, these interests expand, how is it going? How is this community going to address the challenges um, that are in the event of a contingency or a crisis in, in those Belt and Road countries? So, in in thinking about this, um, China faces major constraints. Um, some of them are related to. Um, you know the image management because um, Beijing is really trying to mitigate the uh, the impression that its um, actions are aggressive and militaristic and expansionist. So how do you reconcile uh, you know the peaceful rise or peaceful development image that you want to give to the world with a uh, necessity to expand militarily or on the security realm. So, trying to to uh, assuage that that um, that image uh, management or image suspicion uh, uh, from from the outside world, complicated. Another constraint um, is really in the in the normative and, and legal area, and 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 Mathieu is going to talk more about that. Um, you know, the non-interference uh, principle, and how does that affect uh, China's choices and options if you're not supposed to interfere with domestic you know, affairs and then you wanna send your expeditionary forces to cope with a contingency, how do you reconcile uh, this with, uh, with your own you know, uh, domestic constraints? So that's, that's a key question as well. And, and Matthew, I think, will say that it's, it's, a, it's a flexible process, maybe. Um, and the third, of course, is, is the, the, the capacity gap. You might want to do things that your capacities don't allow you to do so far. And so how do you plan? What, what choices are you going to make um, uh, to, to face the potential of future contingencies? And, and I think that Kristen will say a bit more about, about that, too. Um, so, really, uh, I, 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 um, I want to say that the, 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 the chapters here are sort of a snapshot, right, because this is not a definitive answer. Uh, I think that the, the security, military, and strategic community in Beijing is really looking hard in those issues. We took a snapshot at what they're thinking now, and what we saw is that there are, there are wide array of possibilities that they're thinking about. Some are very traditionally military-oriented. Others are more, I would say, innovative or, or indirect approaches. Um, and we, we really need to, to carefully uh, look at them because they have different implications for how do we also respond to, to, to those areas. So. Um, there are seven chapters, has, um, as have been mentioned before. I, w- I won't go into all of them. Uh, we, can, we can talk about them in the q and um, But really, some of them are focusing more on the, um, this kind of hard power military engagement. Others are looking at this innovative framework for military cooperation and others. Um, including private security companies. So this, is, I think, is very, very um, interesting to see the, again, the, the, the array of, of options. What I want to undermine here, though, is um, uh, this is a tribute of how NBR works. We are a small um, a think tank, but we can rely on a, globally, um, a, a global network of experts. And this is really what you see here. We have uh, seven authors who come from France, the US. Uh, we have an Italian based in China. We have a Chinese author. We have a British author. We have an Australian author. All of them are experts in their domain. And all of them have contributed to, um, to, to, to this report. And I really want to thank each and all of them for the quality of the work they have, they have done. Um, this would not be uh, possible without, without them. So with that, I'm, I'm gonna end here. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, great.
1: All right, we'll go right into Matthew's
3: okay. remarks. <laughs> S- thank you very much for, for having me. I'm very honored to have been part of this publication and to have been invited to join this panel discussion today. Um, as Nadej explained, I've um, contributed to this report by trying to look at what the Chinese say in the open source material regarding the possibility of um, having an overseas military operation to secure Chinese interest in Belt and Road countries. That was the assignment and the more precise assignment was to look at the constraints rather than the incentives. Um, My starting point would be that I think that the Belt and Road Initiative has accelerated a trend that was pre-existing, and that is the gradual importance of the protection of Chinese nationals overseas on the political agenda in Beijing. Um, And I think that the key moment um, was 2004, uh, the shock of having Chinese nationals being killed in terrorist attacks in Sudan, in Afghanistan, and in Pakistan, not attacks that were not linked and that really changed the narrative and, and the thinking in Beijing regarding this issue. But that being said, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative changes the way uh, China thinks about these issues. And in my short presentation today, I want to look more precisely at two separate but connected issues. Number one, um, the possibility that China will build additional overseas bases uh, to secure its interests in Belt and Road countries. And number two, the, the key question of this, for this discussion today, the possibility of having um, overseas military operations to secure Chinese interest in Belt and Road countries. And w- what kind of scenarios are we looking at? Um, I think that the, the answer to these two questions is that all the cards are, uh, in the hands of Beijing now. I mean, all the options are on the table, uh, having more bases, having military operations, and this was, this was not the case uh, five years ago. So the thinking has really changed, and I think it's the result mainly of, uh, of uh, the change of leadership thinking and the impact of uh, Xi Jinping on the change of scale of China's national security policy from a very regional Perspective centered on East Asian sovereignty issues to a global scale. Uh, and, that's, and that's the story of the Belt and Road Initiative. So let me start with the question of overseas bases. I think that Djibouti is a very, very specific model. Uh, what makes Djibouti so special is that there are other countries that have uh, naval bases or other sorts of military bases in Djibouti And that's the reason why Djibouti was chosen by China. China could have made a different choice. It could have chosen, for example, to go in Oman, and China would have been alone in Oman. But it chose Djibouti, um, and it has now troops uh, alongside um, military forces from the US, France, Japan, uh, other European countries. And that tells you something about uh, how China has proceeded regarding building overseas bases. I think that um, when you look at the narrative behind Djibouti, what the Chinese say is that there are three main missions uh, linked to the Djibouti uh, naval uh, facility. Um, Number one, providing logistical support to the anti piracy mission in the Gulf of Aden. That's very true. That's what uh, Djibouti is about. Number two, Providing support or providing a pivot for deployments of peacekeeping troops in Africa or in the region. That has not been the case yet, but you can think that this is likely that Djibouti will be used that way in the future. And number three, providing some logistical support for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions. Um, this has been the case already when China dispatched the Peace Hark hospital ship. Uh, to Djibouti and to other countries on the eastern African coast two years ago. So this is very much um, a legitimate uh, narrative for having picked Djibouti. What is interesting is that it's not only about these three missions, and we all see the connection, and it's very much also in the Chinese narrative between Djibouti and the potential threats against Chinese overseas uh, nationals in the region, um, the possibility that terror attacks uh, could target Chinese nationals in the region, that China would have to conduct non-combatant evacuation operations. This has been the case in 2015 for the first uh, evacuation operation fully conducted by the Chinese Navy from Yemen through Djibouti. So the legitimacy uh, discourse is extremely important. but this is about more than simply humanitarian assistance, peacekeeping and uh, UN sanctions, anti piracy missions. So, so you see the, the narrative and how it's, uh, it's, it, it has shaped in Djibouti. What does it mean for future decisions that China can take? There's a lot of uh, debates in the US, uh, in the world regarding where will China next base uh, be built? And there's a lot of uh, rumors regarding many ports, Sianubville, the Maldives, Vanuatu, uh, even sometimes the Mediterranean, um, with never compelling evidence, especially if you work in uh, op- with open source material on, on these things. I think that um, if China follow the Djibouti model, What will be needed uh, for China to build its next facility is, one, a crisis, and two, a narrative that can convince the international community. If tomorrow China decided to build a base, a naval base, in Guadal or in Jiwani, in Pakistan, without any crisis um, with Iran in the Strait of Hormuz, that would be extremely offensive. Uh, That would mean a change of uh, China's strategic software. That would mean an aggressive policy uh, towards India, towards the United States, um, it would mean that uh, the logic behind China's uh, overseas military operations would completely change. But then, if you look again at um, Jiwani and and Guadal as, you know, maybe where the Chinese next overseas naval base will be built, I think that if there is an opening in the form or an opportunity in the form of a multinational uh, escort mission in the Strait of Hormuz, then you would have um, a sufficient narrative for China uh, to build an additional facility in, in that place. So that's one, one starting point um, I, wa- I want to make regarding overseas bases. In the paper, I touch upon the Chinese facility in Tajikistan. Uh, because I think it's very important and I think it's interesting to contrast the Chinese facility in Tajikistan with the Chinese facility in Djibouti. Um, one of the main differences, and it's quite obvious, is that China communicates a lot about Djibouti but does not communicate at all <laughs> about Tajikistan apart from saying, apart from non really denying that it's uh, uh, it's there, that there's a small facility to oversee Security in the Wakhan corridor, the border between um, Afghanistan and Tajikistan, and and Tajikistan and and China. Um, But it shows that, um, you know, Djibouti is really a starting point, and uh, and the mindset has completely changed in Beijing regarding overseas um, facilities. Um, My second point is on the possibility of having overseas military operations. Um, using these overseas bases or not. On that point, I observe that the strategic discussion has completely changed in China. Um, If you do research interviews or, you know, if you speak with the PLA about this, I think that five years ago the answer would be non-interference. Today the answer is, you know, they don't really know. Uh, It's an option. It's clear. I think the the, the software has changed. and I think that one of the main drivers for this change has been terrorist risks and uh, and the counterterrorism uh, outlook that China has, and, and the terror attacks that Chinese nationals have suffered um, in many countries um, in the world over the past ten years. It's it's just uh, it's just a fact. It's just a fact, and that's where we go to the legal dimension. The twenty fifteen counter-terror law uh, passed by the National People's Congress has been uh, a watershed in this discussion. I think once things change at that level, um, then the strategic discussion completely changes because you see, uh, and this is part of what is now translated in English as rules-based governance, not not rule of law, but rules-based governance. that is part of the of the software changed un, under Xi Jinping. Um, I think that the people people's armed police force has really lobbied. Um, you have the Navy, but you also do have the PAP and the PAP um, and it's deployed in fact uh, in overseas missions, for example, to protect Chinese embassies in Afghanistan and in Iraq um, has almost a vested interest uh, to Grow uh, outside China's borders and is seeing the terrorist risk and counter terror missions as really the driver of a, of a global expansion. Um, and it's very much present in the sources. I have, for this report, translated a few pieces um, published by PAP officers in some Chinese military journals. I mean, you can see that there is a, an intention by the PAP to. Um, be present globally to support uh, Chinese interest and defend uh, Chinese nationals overseas. So what kind of scenarios, now that the sinking on bases has changed and the thinking on overseas military missions has changed as well? I mean, if you think in terms of gradation, I would say, number one, um, a non-combatant evacuation operation in conditions that are more complex than conditions that China faced in Kyrgyzstan, um, in Yemen, in Libya. Um, that is almost, um, you know, automatic. That, that's going to be the Chinese response to a major crisis uh, involving Chinese nationals overseas. There will be an evacuation. Um, and then it depends on the circumstances, the conditions, the risks, etc. Um, one level up. I would say, an evacuation of diplomatic staff uh, from an embassy. And in the material I translated, there's a a very interesting um, paragraph uh, from, I think, a PAP officer, um, saying that one of their nightmare scenario uh, is the assassination of the Russian ambassador in Turkey. Mm. Um, You know, an attack against diplomatic staff um, and how the, PAP or Chinese military would have to respond to this. Um, if there are, for example, kidnapping of, uh, of Chinese diplomatic staff, that's the sort of scenarios for which the PAP uh, is, is training, and this would mean a difficult extraction. So that's a scenario for the future. Then one level up, I would say a terrorist attack against one Chinese project in one Belt and Road country. In fact, it doesn't matter that much if it's a Belt and Road country or not, mm-hmm. I, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but this would invite some sort of uh, response. Um, some of you may have seen the movie Red Sea, Hong Hai Xing Red Sea Operation. Think, yeah. um, which is quite interesting because it was actually sponsored by the, by the PLA Navy, um, the political arm of the PLA Navy, so um, a lot of people have watched the movie Lone Wolf 2, but this one I think is more interesting because it's part of the internal and domestic and international communication of the, of the PLA Navy. That sort of scenario is now very much uh, a possibility. And then uh, on the scale, uh, if you move one level up, I think there's the question of, um, uh, and it's in the sources, you know, the response to a terrorist attack by targeting specific individuals or specific groups, in fact, moving in the direction of uh, an American model uh, in response to terrorist attacks. I think that the discussion is is very much going in that direction. So to conclude very quickly, I mean, two points. Um, Number one, I think that now that the thinking has completely changed, what will decide uh, future scenarios what will be decisive is really events, crisis. Mm-hmm. Or China will pragmatically um, respond to specific crisis scenarios. And number two, um, and I'm speaking more from a European perspective here, I don't think that uh, everyone has, or has adjusted uh, th- their thinking mm. to the fact that uh, China is really moving in the direction mm. of being an interventionist state. Uh, I think that the software remains strategic caution, but there are now many, many um, uh, possibilities that China will exit strategic caution uh, as a result of
4: specific crisis. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, great. And Kristen. Last but not least. No, um, definitely <laughs> <not> least. <laughs> um, thank, I just wanted to thank Nadezh and, and um, Roy for having me on the panel and, and as part of the project, it's been a really great experience. Um, so I, a lot of what I did actually dovetails very nicely with Mathieu's presentation. Um, so the PLA is developing the capabilities for some of those scenarios that you've been talking about. Um, I looked specifically at PLA expeditionary capabilities, so how the PLA is responding to increased pressure by Beijing um, to protect its uh, citizens and interests abroad. And also I looked at um, where and when Beijing might choose to deploy its forces overseas in the future, which is kind of the question on everyone's mind. Um, so I'm going to also echo something that Mathieu said, in that um, the, the trend towards um, China focusing on its expeditionary capabilities has been there for some time. The BRI increased the urgency of that, I would say, um, but the drivers have been there for a while, and those um, those include things like the China Dream, national rejuvenation, where Xi Jinping is calls for an increasing increase in, in China's political, economic, and military power. It calls for a strong military. Um, another one would be China's expanding involvement in inter- international affairs. You can see this in, in increased funding for UN peacekeeping operations in places like Sudan, where you know more and more peacekeepers are going Chinese peacekeepers to protect the oil fields there. Um, a third one that people don't always talk about, but it's important, is increased domestic pressure in China on the leadership to protect citizens abroad, especially when they come into harm's way. Um, you know, That's where you saw some of the non-combatant evacuation operations and things like that. Um, and then a final driver is, is on a pressure on China to become an international security provider um, as it becomes more strong militarily. And um, things like, it's been criticized in the past for not uh, intervening in uh, places like even in, in its own region, like after Typhoon Haiyan, you know, not having the um, HADR capabilities that the U.S. does and, um, and being shown up by the U.S. So, these are drivers that have been around for um, some time, I would say over a decade now. And um, But the BRI has really increased um, the urgency for the PLA to develop the capabilities to close some of these gaps. So, um, which threats does the PLA assess it as most likely to face overseas? Um, because this, this really drives into how they're structuring their expeditionary force. Um, the Chinese discussed the threats in four areas, basically. Um, the first is maritime security, so protection of overseas ports like Djibouti and bases, um, SLOCs, maritime trade routes, um, and then humanitarian assistance disaster relief um, type capabilities. A second um, threat is border security um, and counterterrorism. And this is becoming increasingly a concern, um, particularly uh, for Chinese analysts point out um, along the border with Afghanistan, um, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan, (laughs) Um, but also places like India and North Korea. Um, And the PLA is already deployed to some of these places, um, as has the PAP, but there's also been PLA troops in some of these places. a third uh, threat area is local or regional unrest or conflict. Um, you know, this is Chinese citizens are being sent to BRI countries, um, and some of them are quite unstable. We saw this with Uganda in 2018, where there was widespread unrest, and um, Chinese uh, businessmen were threatened. Um, and the in that case, the Ugandan local military was called on to protect the Chinese citizens. But you could you could envision a scenario in which you know, more widespread unrest might um, require either PAP or or PLA um, boots on the ground at some point. Um, And then a final uh, threat is threats to infrastructure um, and investments, so things like factories, uh, power plants, pipelines, roadways and railways. Um, And these are at the moment mostly being protected by private security forces or local security forces. uh, so, you know, n- n- less, less in the PLA bin, but uh, still being thought about. So, um, what capabilities is the PLA focused on improving? Um, you know, what are, what are the capabilities and the gaps and the trends? And I'm um, going to just kind of cherry pick some of them because I don't want to put you all to sleep. But <laughs> um, so, so the, thing to, the, the first point to understand is that the PLA is developing its expeditionary capabilities across all domains. Um, That means sea, air, land, and space. Um, They're developing capabilities in all of these domains um, to to deploy forces overseas. But some domains are more developed than others. Um, For example, their expeditionary sea power is the most developed. Um, And that's in line with the PLA's general emphasis on maritime operations and and distant seas, which they've been focused on for some time now. Um, And these types of capabilities include surface combatants, amphibious warfare ships, the aircraft carriers, um, and the hospital ship. Um, this is all being going to be supported by expeditionary air power. So um, this is still limited. The PLA Air Force is under the gun now to um, provide a more strategic airlift capability, which has hampered um, Chinese expeditionary operations in the past. And so that's kind of what they're focused on in that respect. Um, but it's looked at as uh, supporting um, maritime operations. For um, the land power, the ground forces, these, you know, the PLA's never needed to sustain significant forces overseas. Um, I think it's pretty unlikely that they'll send a large contingent of ground forces overseas anytime in the near future. But they do have um, pockets of capability, and those are largely in special forces, um, also the peacekeeping and the border patrol um, forces. So they're they're improving the capabilities in, in all of those um, areas, and, and you know. Special forces would be useful in a kidnapping scenario, for example, or a hostage scenario. And uh, some of the special forces have actually already deployed in the Gulf of Aden with the um, counter-piracy task forces, so they're getting some experience. And then finally, um, there's space capabilities. And so you need the space capabilities to enable military operations abroad, and that includes uh, satellite navigation, communication, meteorology for uh, real-time data and intelligence support. And um, China's developing Capabilities in all of these areas um, and including on-the-ground support facilities for these areas too. Um, that said, they do face some significant challenges. Um, some have already been discussed a little bit um, by Mr. Sabraj mentioned the command, control, and coordination issues. So who who controls what forces overseas? Um, they have a new theater command structure, and you know, it probably depends on the contingency, but you could envision um, in a, if something were to happen in Pakistan, for example, the Western Theater Command might con, might control that, those forces there. But if something happens in the maritime domain, that's um, you know, we're not sure who controls that. <laughs> and so I think there's some. Um, I'm not sure the PLA entirely knows that either at the moment. Um, so we'll have to wait and see with that that uh, that issue. Um, Logistics is still an issue for them. Um, they are mitigating the inadequate sea lift, um, airlift, and at sea replenishment um, issues. They've been producing large amounts of ships and planes to, to mitigate those things, but, um, but they still need more places. And so you know, while I agree they'll be very careful about uh, establishing another base, they are looking actively looking to have dual use access agreements at many ports around the world because they need places to preposition um, equipment and for logistics. Um, the, the, the third challenge is lack of experience and training. And so a very, very small percentage of the PLA is actually deployed abroad. And most of those have been in peacekeeping or in counter piracy operations. Um, and it's, it's a very small percentage. So they, they really don't have a lot of experience abroad. They don't have a lot of experience in crises. And um, you know they've tried to mitigate this by doing more realistic training. You can read a lot in the in the literature about um, their distant seas training, for example, in the maritime realm, where they go out and they they have groups and they, they train. But you know they haven't been crisis tested, and so I think um, you know the neos were limited in nature; they were small. Um, so you know it's a little bit unclear how well they will do in a um, wider or broader <coughs> crisis. And then finally, there's the challenge of the other countries' reactions to a global PLA. Um, you know, it's, it's, they are encountering some wariness about BRI in general, um, you know, moving, having a, a broader military footprint, which they're, they're, they're looking to do, is also cr- probably going to create some tension and backlash. And so that's a challenge in terms of how they deal with um, host country reactions um, and all, all other reactions around the world. So in terms of answering the question of when the PLA might deploy, might, when Beijing might choose to deploy the PLA, um, it's likely a combination of when the drivers I first mentioned, the you know public expectations or protection of um, investments or direct threats to Chinese um, interests, um, when a combination of those meet with, they have the expeditionary capabilities that are sufficient enough to do the mission. So it's the nexus of those two things. and. Those are um, likely to be found in the in the maritime area where it, where where the capabilities are the most developed and they've already had some experience, and also in the border counterterrorism um, areas where they uh, they have they're taking the threat of, of terrorism pretty seriously and there's increased concern over some of the borders, um, and this would all be supported by the limited air power, strategic airlift, and airborne capability that um, I talked about earlier. Uh, in terms of where they might deploy. Um, You'd likely see more um, deployment for maritime missions, so uh, protection of ports and facilities, just like Djibouti, but also potentially Pakistan and other places where they have dual-use access agreements. Um, You'll see more and trade route protection. Um, For example, China has um, expressed interest in possibly patrolling the Persian Gulf, which would represent a pretty significant step up from the Gulf of Aden um, counter-piracy patrols that it does now, and maybe in, in the Indian Ocean as well. Um, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, more in Southeast Asia, um, likely more in the Indian Ocean, and also non-combatant evacuation operations, depends on the crisis and and what they would do, but um, likely more of those. In terms of border and counter-terrorism missions, we'll likely see increased presence in Afghanistan, either by the PAP or the PLA, Um, Pakistan and Central Asia, and Tajikistan, obviously, where they have the facility. Um, and that includes more joint patrols and partnerships with other countries. Um, so also training, you know, they're also training um, other countries. Um, border patrol forces, for example, on how to protect the border so that they don't have to put as many uh, resources into, the, into it themselves. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's so, so. those are the areas where I think they will, um, we'll, we'll see more PLA deployment and uh, where they're likely to focus on in the, um, at least the near future. I guess looking further out, you'd, you'd have the question of more bases and um, you know, more uh, complex maritime operations. I think I'll stop yeah. there. Thank
1: you. Great. Thank you all so much for those wonderful presentations. And I definitely noticed, as you kind of identified in the beginning of your remarks, Kristen, a, a, a trend between the two presentations that I think is also echoed in pieces of the other uh, analysis in the report which is that this is not necessarily um, a series of trends that are brand new, that are uh, only uh, derived from Xi Jinping's leadership. There are um, aspects of all parts of this that kind of were underway for some time, but that certainly um, there's an acceleration. There has been some shift um, and certainly some changes that you've identified in your analysis, and so the, I think those are some interesting threads for us to pull on. Um, in in the introductory uh, in the introduction of the report, um, there's a, a note about how in the 2015 uh, defense white paper there was kind of an unprecedented emphasis on um, securing China's maritime interests and in the PLA's role um, as one of its core missions to doing so. Uh, And we saw this year that we got a a new white paper. Mm -hmm. Um, So the 2019 white paper released in the summer um, kind of built on some of those same trends. Um, And I'd be curious to hear from each one of you, I don't know how much opportunity you had to kind of tease out aspects of that in your analysis as Mm -hmm. this was kind of being published, I think right after Mm -hmm. that was Mm -hmm. released. Um, but are there things that you saw in um, in the new twenty nineteen white paper um, that uh, that kind of reflect this acceleration and um, change in the trends that were existing already in twenty fifteen? Um, so kind of comparing those two, and what, what did you see that's new and different? I guess.
0: Well, I haven't read the new white paper, <laughs> no? so I'm sorry, I <laughs> <laughs> um, but. I'll, I'll, I'll let Matthew and, and Kristen respond if if they want. Um, I just want to go back to to the the research question about whether basically whether BRI is an inflex mm-hmm. inflection point in the you know defense planning of China, and I think the report also shows that not, not really. Maybe not. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that you know, it's not like. Uh, suddenly, the PLA is going to completely change direction in their planning and in the operations that they're thinking about. It's just that it gives maybe more focus and maybe more urgency in starting to think about this kind of deployments. But it's not. It and and I think both Matthew and Kristen just said it. It's a, it's a it's an effort that's been going on for quite a while already, and I think there is no change of, di- of general direction. It just accelerates, it gives focus, um, and it gives emphasis on, on some areas, um, but there's no fundamental shift. You know, it's not like suddenly the PLA is just going to focus on um, you know, high intensity conflicts, or, or how do we provide stabilization operations in, in, you know, in, in other countries that they're not there Maybe not yet, or not at all. Um, so, so yeah, it's it's just it's just that I think BRI also maybe gives a rationale for or an additional rationale for that kind of you know, power projection capabilities or expeditionary capabilities that the PLA would want anyway. Um, so it's it's a mutually reinforcing, I think. What the PLA wants and, and what BRI can provide as a as a as a as a driver for, for that kind of modernization. Mm.
3: You know, I think what really changes under Xi Jinping is that some debates um, that were taking place in China and in particular uh, the discussion regarding China uh, being a global security actor or not. I mean, previously there was. A lot of resistance against this idea. Um, but there was also you know, a line of thinking that was supporting the idea that China should become a global security player. I mean, suddenly with Xi Jinping, what you have is an end to this debate mm-hmm. and um, something decisive and conclusive, and um, the state that adjusts uh, to this um, decisive conclusion. Um, I think it's very obvious from a number of policy documents. And I have two in mind, Um, not the most recent white paper, um, but uh, the conclusion of one EU-China summit and the conclusion of one Africa-China summit, because these are two cases um, where China was extremely reluctant uh, to portray itself as a global security player in the past, I mean, relations with Europe, relations with Africa. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, uh, during the first term of uh, of Xi, around 2014 2015 uh, you have an acknowledgement uh, in the final communiqués of uh, this diplomatic summit that one they agree to see europe um, as uh, they agree to see security as a pillar of eu china cooperation even though it's not really happening in-, in practice i think the you know the mindset has changed and in africa um, they accept uh, to Admit that they have a role in African security affairs. I'll just say one thing regarding the 2019 uh, defense white paper because that's one new element uh, which I noticed I think that's the first time and please someone correct me if I'm wrong that the question of uh, foreign naval presence in the South China Sea is included in the report and that I think is an evolution on our topic today, um, I think that this is just uh, you know a continuity. Yeah,
4: yeah. I think um, I think another difference under Xi Jinping is this um, their definition of what is security or mm-hmm. their their debate over what is security. Because mm-hmm. I think you know before you could very clearly see a division between what they considered internal security and then the external security mm-hmm. and. BRI has really brought internal and external security kind of together. I mean, now they have to worry about terrorist attacks on, you know, either um, Chinese and Chinese interests, for example, or even on the borders. And uh, you know, the the PAP is a good example. They've expanded the PAP. It used to just be purely focused on, you know, containing riots in China and other mm-hmm. things like that. But now it's it's broadened out. The mission set has broadened out, and so. I think that reflects a, a, a difference in thinking from the leadership in Beijing on, um, you know, it, security has to be looked at as more holistic, yeah. um, and so we'll probably see more changes. That the actually the anti-terrorism law is another good, really good example of that, where you know you yeah. take a domestic issue and broaden it out, you know, yeah. uh, enabling having a legal framework to send forces abroad. So.
1: Yeah. And- I wanted to pick up on one more thing, and then I'll turn it over uh, for Q&A. But just the, the point that Matthew made at the end about um, adjusting you know, both in the United States and other uh, Western countries, adjusting the thinking um, to kind of come to terms with the fact that uh, China uh, now can be uh, seen as kind of an interventionist uh, country. I'd be curious to hear all of your thoughts on what the themes and key points that you've identified in your analysis um, mean for for the United States and for Western countries focusing on the region. Um, what what should we be focused most on the United States out of all these different changes and different aspects of uh, China's uh, in securing its interest along the BRI, what is the role for the United States as we look at these and, and for other Western countries?
0: So.
3: And I think it clearly raises questions about engagement with the PLA. Um, Djibouti raises questions about engagement. Um, there are now interactions um, and I'm not going to speak for the United States, but. I think the discussion in Europe has slightly evolved on this matter, also as a result of, uh, I would say the governance style of uh, Xi Jinping. Um, There used to be the idea that, you know, China could become an important uh, international security partner uh, in the Middle East. This is not really happening in practice. You have some very limited engagement uh, in the Gulf of Aden, uh, rather limited joint exercises, I mean, in scope and in terms of the items that are being exercised by, uh, by the two sides. Um, and if you look at, um, well, the policy documents on the European side, it used to be that um, engage more engagement was some sort of a policy goal, and now it's very much focused on, you know, maybe possibilities in, in dealing with crisis in africa but i don't think that there is a strong police, polit- political push on either side uh, mm-hmm. to move ahead with the idea of more military engagement or you know seeing the chinese naval permanent presence in djibouti as an opportunity i, I don't think that's the dominant vision at all um, especially in france but uh, in europe in 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 general um, i think there are questions regarding the ultimate intentions of this Um, change of scale of Chinese military presence. Um, It doesn't mean that you know there will be no engagement or no cooperation in future crises. If you think in terms of Mm -hmm. an evacuation for example it would be just uh, needed for logistical reasons. Um, I have a very good example that dates back to the Chinese evacuation from Kyrgyzstan I think in 2010 Mm -hmm. uh, which I studied before because there was a simultaneous evacuation of European nationals from Kyrgyzstan. And at one point when you evacuate nationals, you have to rely on uh, the security provided by the local, uh, by by the national government in question. And it's either competition or cooperation. In the case of Kyrgyzstan in 2010, it was competition because the the resources of the Kyrgyz government were limited. So, you know, it's, uh, who gets the escort first, and this has consequences. I think it takes some um, exchanges, in, indeed, uh, with with the PLA for that sort of scenarios.
4: Yeah, I mean, so um, as the PLA goes out into the world, you know, I think it, I think the US and our allies and partners were, were going to struggle a little bit with how to, you know, what do you do with that? So there are different ways to approach that. You know, one is you could just say, well, leave China to its own devices, in which case you risk China doing what it wants to do with, with sort of no input from anyone else. Um, you end up with maybe a rogue actor type, type um, country. Um, or you could you know, get together an international coalition to, um, to shape uh, and, and try and uh, you know, influence a little bit China's expeditionary force um, development and choices. Um, and then there might be cases such as an evacuation where China might ask for help um, for assistance if it can't get all of its citizens out or if its expeditionary capabilities aren't developed enough. So I really think it depends on how we react and how um, our allies like Japan um, and Australia and others react to a PLA expeditionary force it really depends on the, uh, the situation, the crisis, um, and also what interests are, are at stake. Um, that's not really a great answer, but I think that's, <laughs> that's what we have to do.
2: Thanks for listening to another edition of Asia Insight. To check out the show notes and links to the Belt and Road Initiative report, go to www.mbr.org. This podcast was edited by Simone McGuinness. Asia Insight theme music is by Laura Schwartz of Bellwether Bayou. Subscribe to Asia Insight on Podbean and Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think about the podcast on Twitter. Tune in next time for another episode of Asia Insight.